Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. Ryan Ray here. Josh Shelton has some sick family, so he is out. We have uh, a regular contributor to the show and the editor at Shell Mag, the one and only David Blackman. David, how's it going? Hey, going great. It's just a beautiful rainy day in Texas. Yeah, it is rainy. It's a little cool over here. <laughs> um, so, David, real quick, uh, editor at Shell Mag, it seems like every time we talk to you, you kind of are growing your presence at Shell Mag. Uh, tell the listeners who may be new, new to the show or haven't heard you before, um, what do you guys do at Shell Mag and what all can they find there uh, from yourself and other writers? Well, it's interesting. We, we do a lot of things there uh it's a publication now that's five years old the magazine itself uh started as a publication with a heavy focus on the barnett and eagle ford shells but then uh, over time has really expanded scope to uh focus on really every shell play in the country uh not in every issue but uh periodically and uh and uh, we also have a radio program uh, called In the All Patch that's affiliated with the show. It airs all over the state of Texas now. We started in Houston, but uh, about mid-year this year, uh, through iHeartRadio, expanded that into markets uh, throughout the state of Texas. So that that's growing as well. And uh, we have a set of regular contributors. Um, Former Railroad Commissioner David Porter is one of them, um, a name everybody will recognize. And... Uh, you know, and then we have guest contributors in, in pretty much every issue, and uh, we try to cover uh, the, the gamut every two months uh, in the Shell universe, <laughs> right. which, which grows every two months, it seems like. So it's a, it's a big, uh, big task to try to cover all that. No doubt. And shellmag.com is the website, so go check out David's work there. Correct. You've, you've written a lot of uh, lengthy pieces over people that are very important to the industry. I don't know if those are available yeah. on the website or if you have to subscribe, well, but there's that's a the, lot of good yeah. stuff there. That's the other thing we should mention is, you know, we do publish a, a paper magazine, but it's also digital format there at the website. Our cover stories most months are CEO of one of the companies in the oil industry. They're Long pieces, as Ryan said, I write them, and it's it's kind of a, a labor of love, really. We our current uh, current cover is XTO, uh, and our next cover is going to be Apache Corporation. Uh, you know, we've we've covered Pioneer and Parsley and Oasis Petroleum, and just on a marathon, and I mean not marathon, Halliburton. And, uh, you know, just on and on and on. So um, it's it's really a lot of fun. And uh, I really enjoy doing it. And uh, so appreciate you giving me the time to talk about it. Well, good deal. Okay, we've got a couple of things here to get into before David and I get to the show. Uh, first off, Roddy Strong is the sponsor. To get the gift basket giveaway, you have to have your review in iTunes. We are at 95-star reviews right now. If we could get 100 five-star reviews by the end of the year, that would be fantastic. But the final giveaway is next Friday. So we were, David and I are sitting here on December the 7th at 10 a.m. If it is in iTunes by December 14th at 10 a.m., you will be entered to win either the gift basket or the VIP tour in Sonoma County to the Rodney Strong Winery. Um, we have one review this week from West Texas. 
he says, I hear only five stars are accepted. That is correct. We only accept five-star reviews. The biggest downside is guests and other contributors are very frustrating to listen when my car volume is all the way up and the phone audio is still unintelligible. Um, so let me stop there, break that down. Um, we, we thank you for that, first off, because I edit the show with my headphones on, so I don't know what it sounds like in the car. We will work on that. It is tough. We can't control... Um, you know what's going on with the cell phones so uh, but thank you for that heads up we do appreciate that and he also says i appreciate that the hosts are quick to acknowledge their limitations as experts in fields they're not familiar with however this is not the case when it comes to climate change great stuff glad to have quality content for my drives looking forward to more sergio um, sergio will be on today so there you go david i want to talk to you real quick about the climate change thing um yeah, you know, we do acknowledge we're not experts, which is just about in everything. But here, <laughs> well, that's just Josh and I, not, not, not David. David's an expert. So here's what Josh and I have said. I think I can speak for him. Essentially, our position on climate change is a couple things. First off, um, and this has nothing to do with climate change. You could do economic modeling. So let's just take economic modeling. Um, if you're talking about trying to model the economy, first off, a lot of people don't realize that um, a lot of the mainstream media, whether even Fox News versus MSNBC, they, they subscribe to a certain school of economics. That's just one school. There's multiple schools of economics. Um, and so we talk about modeling the economy. There's certain things that you're going to ev- the value over. Um, you know, you're going to have a weight on what you think the Fed does, what interest rates do, you know, consumer indexes, all these things. So we're trying to model what the economy is going to do. It's very hard. There's so many factors that go into it. It's very easy to be wrong. Um, I think we both agree with that, right? That's a oh, great, well, right. yeah, absolutely. Okay. So when we talk about climate change, that's the same thing there. It's, it's, it's that it's very hard to model the climate because of all the variables and the inputs and the things you have to weigh there. That's our, our stance on climate change. The second thing I think we've said, uh, Josh, on the show, David, is that if you go back in history and you just read history um, and you note things that they, the, people, the people in 1654 will say, Things that they weren't paying attention to, but they can tell us. And so, for instance, if you're reading a general, um, and the general says that he marched his troops up to this area during this time of the year, and the weather was like this. Or if a farmer said that his crops were producing this types of crops during this time of the year um, in this area. You could go back and look at that and look at the weather patterns of what was going on there um, without having any scientific information. Now, you can't measure the temperature and things like that, but you could say, okay... Um, wait, they were growing crops in this area, and now today it's too cold or it's too hot or whatever the case may be to grow crops there. And those are the types of things historically we've said that if you watch those trends and go back and read history, you can find that the climate has changed. And the people writing about it, they're not writing about the climate. They're writing about their lives, and so you can just mo- you can just follow, hey, well, this used to be like this, and now it's like this, and now it's like this. And all that happened before the Industrial Revolution. And so when you talk about the impact of humans on the climate— um, I think our other point to that is, has been, um, you can go back and see climate change in history apart from scientific data. That's, I think, yeah. a fair, that's a fair point too, I think, right? Sure. Okay, so all of that, I think we can see all of that without claiming to be experts on climate change. Um, and I think that's what we're trying to say is that when we look at this data, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on climate change, but we look at this data, we look at this stuff. Those are the types of things that we can we can reasonably propose and reasonably say, hey, these are the problems that we have. And it doesn't mean that the Earth might not warm in by four degrees over the next year. It won't, but but it could. Um, but that's <laughs> but, good, sure. Yeah, it could, sure, right. It could. But when you look at the historic stuff on climate change, most of the models are wrong, if not all of them. Um, but there are well, they're all wrong. No, they're all wrong. They all 
they all have a bias towards uh, excess heating of the earth, every one of them. And that's been demonstrated uh, time after time after time and year after year. Right. And the final thing I'll point to is, if I can pull it up real quick, there's a podcast called Contra Krugman. And so to kind of go back to what I was saying about the different schools of economics, Paul Krugman writes for the New York um, the New York Times, and he has a weekly column on economics. And he is a Keynesian eco- economist. Um, let me see here. Yeah, here it is. Contra Krugman. And there is a podcast called Contra Krugman. It kind of goes and refutes his articles from an Austrian perspective. They did a show on episode 160, 160 of the Contra Krugman podcast, where they go through and they break down um, the guy who just won the Nobel Peace Prize on, um, I, I can't remember what it was, but he had a piece on climate change. And so you have David on one part, this this economist saying, this is what it would cost the world globally. Um and this is what we think the the world may uh, the temperature might grow by, and then the UN comes out and they ignore all of his recommendations and and actually exasperate the problem by uh, looking at the model um, a, a one or two degrees higher. But anyways, episode one sixty of the Country Group pod, uh, podcast. Uh, those are some smart guys over there. If you want to hear some of the e- economics of climate change and what's you know. Um, because, David, if, if we're being honest here, if the worst-case predictions for climate change are right, if they are right, you say that, um, taxing the economy and taking people's money out of their, out of their pockets, um, that would actually make the effects of climate change far worse than giving people the ability to um, build new cities or you know, move inland or whatever the case would be to adjust to climate change. I, I think that's, again, a fair a fair thing to think. Well, yeah, that's a very fair thing. And and we see how populations react to those efforts over in France over the last couple of weeks, because that's exactly what's going on there. They're protesting not a gasoline tax, as our news media keeps claiming it is. It's a carbon tax. And it's a carbon tax designed to meet that country's goals in the Paris Climate Accords. And that's what the population is rebelling against. And, and so... You know, I mean, this is going to be the conundrum uh, for these people who want to push these kinds of policies onto populations in free countries over the next decades is how is the population going to react? And and Macron is finding that out the hard way this, right now in France. Okay. So didn't mean to spend that much time on climate change. Just wanted to clarify what Josh and I are saying. Uh, but you are welcome always to come on the show, uh, West Texas, 318-599-9192. And clarify maybe we missed something there but i think that's a reasonable position to take um regardless of um you know claiming to be experts or not so i think that's our position okay david let's get into what people care about texas oil and gas we are here at the end of the year um let's back it up well, you know back to january how has this year you've obviously documented a lot of this on you know, show mag or forbes or you know db daily update db daily update um you know, what did you get wrong, maybe? What did you get right? What, you know, some things that surprised <laughs> you? <laughs> it's one of those things where I hate people ask me, like, hey, you said yeah. this like three months ago. I'm like, did I say that? Okay, you know, you, you talk so much. Uh, for me, at least, uh, you know, I'm on podcasts and stuff, and I say a lot of stuff, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to always remember, what did I say? And I don't <laughs> want to contradict myself, but, you know, you just you, you just you, you just start talking, and the next thing you know, you said something you didn't mean to say, or um, you thought at the time, and then you realize it changed. So what's what's what surprised you, maybe, let's say, about this year in the oil and gas industry, if anything? Well, I, you know, I, I don't think anything that has happened just in terms of, of how the year has progressed in terms of uh, prices, uh, in terms of developing these shell plays across the country and, and overall U.S. production has really surprised me other than the magnitude of the increase in production in the United States uh, in 12 months 
the United States industry has added 2 million barrels of oil per day in 12 months uh, to its overall production and set all these records. Whereas a year ago, I thought and predicted, frankly, uh, last December that we might add a million barrels a day. Um, and that was, I thought, an optimistic prediction. So, and frankly, it was more than other experts were predicting. Uh, so it, I think that has the magnitude of the increase has surprised uh, almost every analyst of the industry. And it's it's all thanks to the application of advanced technologies and, and companies getting better and better every day uh, in terms of their internal processes and uh, maximizing recoveries from every well that's drilled. Then the other thing is, you know, I, I at the first of the year predicted we would end the year at $75 WTI and everything was going along just great <laughs> until early October. I mean, we were sitting there at $71 and I'm like, oh man, I'm a genius. And then, and then the Saudis massively overreacted to the uh, implementation of the Iran sanctions and didn't did not understand that the uh, Trump administration was going to grant waivers to Indian and China uh, in turn on, on those sanctions. So Indian and China, India and China have been able to continue importing oil from Iraq and the Saudis massively oversupplied the market through October and into mid December, mid November. And that crashed the price by 30%. So as we're recording this, we're sitting here at $53 with no hope of getting to 75. Uh, so I was completely wrong about where we were going to end up, but that gummit, I was, I was close. I almost, <laughs> almost made it. Yeah. You, you within two months, within two months. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. I'm glad you brought that up because either last week or two weeks on the show, we talked about your piece um, and you mentioned that. And one of the things I said, I, I was, I would kind of tweak that statement a little bit. It, it feels like to me, um, the Saudis, um, are, are so obviously they, they oversupplied. I'm not denying that part of it, but it feels like there's the, the Trump administration, at least the public pressure he's put on the Saudis is partly to blame for some of their, um, reaction to the market, if you will, overreaction to the market. It feels like that's, that needs to be weighed in there somewhere because he has consistently come out and, and I really don't understand his, his policy here. Um, talking about lowering prices, lowering prices, lowering prices. You and then you take the the journalist and what's what happened there, and it feels like maybe they were trying to appease Trump on um, on some level. What what what? How am I wrong there? Because you you thought well, that this made, out well, very well, uh, very well, I'm sure. So tell me what, what I'm missing. Well, I I think it's a combination of two. I think uh, in early October, at the first of October, they did not understand that the Trump administration was going to exempt. India and China. And frankly, I don't think the Trump administration knew it was going to until right at the 1st of November. Mm. So, so I do think the, the Saudis really uh, misanalyzed where the market was heading. But then I also think that, that along about the 1st of November, the president did start trying to put a lot of pressure on them. And it was right at the time, you know, in the midst of the whole Khashoggi affair. Uh, to lower prices. And so I th I do think that that pressure from the president uh, encouraged them to extend their oversupply of the market into November after they had become aware that they were doing it. Um, but now, you know, the price has crashed. I think it's crashed to a level far below where the Saudis are comfortable with it being. They want it. They want Brent at 75 or 80 
uh, and WTI would be at 65 to 70. So I do think, uh, you know, you're, you're going to see them cut and the rest of OPEC and Russia cut and, uh, the price is going to go travel back up uh, for WTI. I'll get back above 60 here in the next month or two. So let's talk about the low prices. Um, I think you said before on here, I know we talked about it, I think it was with you, um, the, the first, or maybe you wrote an article, I can't remember. Anyway, the first half of 2019, you know, we're going to kind of expect companies to drill maybe the Eagle for the Balkan or insert play here. Um, not abandon the Permian, but we do have this bottleneck constraint. Um, and then you do see a slight rise right now in natural gas prices. Um, with the low oil prices for the first half of 2019, do you think that kind of where we're at now, might companies might go, you know what, we were going to put two rigs in the, per- uh, the Eagle Ford, let's go ahead and put three or four, or do you think, no, kind of where we were a few months ago with the Permian production for the first half of 2019, it's kind of, it's kind of going to stay the same pace? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think there's going to be a lot of change from this recent price drop because it is. I, I do think it is going to start trending back up again. First of all, and uh, you know the problem is that the best margins are still in the Permian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but the problem with that is so is the pipeline constraint right. during the first half of 2019. Now that's going to start getting resolved late next year, and two years from today we're going to have this huge glut of transportation coming mm-hmm. out of the Permian. So. I just think you're probably going to see a general slowdown, and it's not going to be huge, but a slight slowdown in drilling in general in the United States uh, through the first six months of next year. Maybe you might see the rig count go from, you know, it's currently sitting, I think drilling infos is around 1150. You might see the rig count go down below 1100 for a while. um, And then start picking up in the second half of the year as these Permian producers First of all, the price will strengthen, and and then uh, as you start uh, getting close to the time when the new pipelines are going to come online out of the Permian, and and uh, you're going to start being able to accommodate those bigger volumes out of that basin. Okay, so that leads me to the Port of Corpus Christi. We've talked about that a lot on the show. Yeah, um, it's a it's a pivotal thing. Um, we are a pro port. I don't know if I don't know. You might know this answer. If the expansions that the ports talking about doing are enough, or will we need more um, capacity in different areas? Um, tell, I know you said before the show you had an update on the the port. What's going on there? Well, uh, Congress or uh, the appropriations committees uh, in Congress uh, allocated uh, an an additional fifty five million dollars to that project down there to deepen and widen that port for the Army Corps of Engineers. And so that that project uh, is going to get started in earnest in 2019, and it'll take a year and a half to, to complete, I think. And, and so that's going to get done. Um, then you have their Harbor Island uh, Alliance, uh, you know, that they've got the funding, private equity funding for now. Uh, to build an off uh, a loading terminal there at Harbor Island across the uh, ship channel from uh, Aransas, I mean Port Aransas, and so uh, there's a lot going da- on down there. And then you also have a, a project that the port is not real thrilled about, Trafigura, this uh, Swiss company or Dutch company, I'm sorry, coming in and and proposing to build an an offshore loading terminal about 15 miles out into the Gulf of Mexico, and. Uh, and so a lot going on down there on the coast to, to try to alleviate this fear that, you know, once you start a, able to, you know, you get these new pipelines out of the Permian in place and these huge volumes start suddenly coming down at the Gulf Coast, the big fear right now is that, well, now we're going to have a bottleneck 
uh, at the ports, right. you know, and not be able to ship it all, uh, export it as much as we need to export. And and so luckily, you know, we're just in time getting uh, all these funding projects uh, in place and funded uh, to hopefully head head off the creation of a new bottleneck at the at the coast. Okay, final thing before we get Sergio on, let's talk about refineries real quick. One of the things that's come up, um, in some circles at least, is since the show revolution, especially with the Permian emergence, is that how the refineries are built, not only in the United States, but globally, aren't really meant to handle large volumes of light speed crude. Some people have speculated that this would see a large discount of WTI and kind of widen the spread. Um, sometimes I've kind of seen that might trend that way, and then it seems to kind of correct itself. But it seems like now there's talk of um, the refineries um, retooling, refitting, whatever word you want to put there, to handle more of this light sweet crude. Um, do you feel like we're on the right trajectory with that and it will be able to help the industry grow? Because obviously if you can't refine the product, then you know the, the, yeah. you, will, you will see a large discount in it. Yeah, I mean, there's a limit to how much we can export as a country uh, because there's a limit globally to the market for this light sweet crude, right? I mean, there's just a limit to how much of that can go overseas. We're not close to reaching that limit yet, but we will be in five years if we don't have this retooling of U.S. refineries. And and I just think, you know, the refiners are seeing, well, this is where the future is, frankly, I mean, here in the United States. And we're really – I know people – kind of forget this from time to time, but we're in the very early stages of drilling these shale plays. Right. Uh, this is a hundred year process and we're eight, nine, 10 years into it. So this is the future of United States production and the refining sector sees that. And so, yeah, uh, we are starting to see some of these refiners make announcement that they're going to start retooling their refineries or parts of them to to handle more of the light sweet crude and less of the heavy crude coming in from overseas and that's a great thing i mean that's just how the business progresses in right. this country and, yeah uh, it, so. it, it's funny josh and i joke that um you know if you look at the, the the industry so i'm 33 um for the first half of my life there was no real there's, there was no such thing as this show revolution that's as we right. understand today <laughs> and if you go back to like 1995 there would be no need for a Texas oil and gas podcast there wasn't that much news no. i mean you, now I, I hate to date you here david but you can tell us in 1995 there wasn't this kind of rapid news coming out of the permian and you oh, know, no. all this stuff um, as it is today so it's just in that short period of time the last 15 20 years um, you know, I've been in the industry since 2005, and so just watching it from that standpoint is just wow. I can't imagine. Um, again, not to date you, but someone who's a little bit older than me will say, <laughs> "Well, we can date me. I've been in the industry six years longer than you've been alive." So yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty dated at this point. But I mean, this is it's, it's. I can't imagine from your perspective how much it's changed in that time period. Oh, it's it's just unbelievable. I mean, I I like to tell people ten years ago. The Permian Basin was a dead basin just right. 10 years ago. There was nothing happening in the Permian Basin other than smaller companies going into long existing fields and, you know, uh, buying them from bigger companies and, you know, re refurbishing wells and trying to squeeze a few more barrels a day out of them. And, and that's just 10 years ago. Uh, so it's just it's it's a sea change. It's it's phenomenal. It's just really almost defies comprehension, frankly, what's happened uh, since 2009. Okay, so up next, making his debut with the Houston Chronicle is the one and only Sergio Chapa, energy reporter extraordinaire, at least, okay, the extraordinaires from the Texas Oil and Gas 
podcast perspective, energy reporter with the Houston Chronicle. Sergio, first off, it's good to know that you didn't big time us and balk on coming on the show. Thank you for joining us today. No, no. Thank you, Ryan. No, thank you. I, I wouldn't be here without the podcast. So That's that, true. That's, clear. that's true. <laughs> it's good to have you, Sergio, man. Congratulations. I know David was giving his thanks offline. Uh, it's, good to, it's good to have you back on. Real quick, just... Uh, How's it been going since you've been there? Have you liked the change, like moving to Houston? Just kind of give the audience just a 30-second overview of um, what's changed since we last talked to you. Oh, well, you know, Houston was a bit of a little bit of getting used to. It was touch and go there that first week, but then it really got melted away by all the, all the great restaurants and all the great, friendly people here in Houston, especially in the energy sector. It's just been a very warm welcome and lots of good stories coming out of Houston these days. So... Definitely, definitely loving it. Yeah, it's, it's it's good to see you over there, and congratulations again. Okay, let's get into it. First off, let's talk about some news that broke this week. The U.S. is a net, was a net, could be a net. What's going on? Net exporter of crude oil. Right. The United States, as of uh, as of last week, you know, when statistics released on on Thursday by the EEA, looks like looks like the United States has become a a net exporter of crude oil and petroleum products. Um, for the first time since the late 1940s. So um, a big shift, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the economy there. Um, well, what the situation is all just largely due to a big spike in crude oil exports. Now, right now, I'm sure you all know that, that there's a big kind of 8 to $9 price difference between West Texas Intermediate and uh, – Brent crude oil. So that sent overseas demand for West Texas intermediate soaring, you know, uh, in late November. And so that boost, you know, pushed, helped push, you know, the United States over the edge. Uh, the United States still imports roughly about 7.4 million barrels of crude oil per day for all the refineries and other, other things. But so you take that 3.2 million barrels of exports, subtract that. And then you subtract the uh, the uh, 4.2 million barrels per day of like gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, propane, and you know other products that are exported. And what you end up with is, <laughs> you know, the United States being a net exporter by 211,000 barrels per day. That's a small number, you know, relatively compared to all the rest of them, but. But hey, we'll take it, right? <laughs> right, and you know what? What amazes me about it, Sergio, is that uh, that happened about a month after. I, I can't remember if it was in Bloomberg or the Financial Times, but there was an article about one of the experts uh, by one of the experts I like to follow. I mean, very smart people, um, you know, saying predicting that the U.S. could become a net exporter of crude oil by 2020, by sometime in 2020. So. Just a few weeks later, it actually happens, if only for one week. So it's kind of a kind of an amazing circumstance. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I guess I was checking my calendar real quick to make sure it wasn't twenty <laughs> with the uh, with the uh, with the, with this news. I mean, it's a small margin, and next week they could, you know, the United States could go back to being a net importer. Um, there's just this particular set of circumstances um, in late November that led to this. Um, they could continue, um, you know, based on whatever happens with OPEC in Vienna, you know, in global markets. Um, that that price difference sure isn't going to change for a while, though. So 
I know a lot of companies here, local, a lot of refining companies, refining companies here in the United States are definitely benefiting from that, that price difference. So, Oh yeah. Okay. Let's talk about a piece you got came out on November 29th. U S natural gas exports to Mexico hit new record. Well, we haven't talked about Mexico in a little while, so it's good to kind of get back into that mode. Always good to do business, business with our uh, friends to the South U S natural gas ports, uh, U.S. natural gas exports to Mexico hit new record of sagging production south of the border. So take us south of the border, Sergio. What's going on down there that allowed for us to be able to export uh, more gas to them? Oh, right. Um, so, you know, it's no secret that, that, you know, Mexico's national oil company, Pemex, is, is facing, a, you know, sagging production both in crude oil and natural gas. Pemex right now only produces about 2.4 billion cubic feet of natural gas per day. And, uh, and they're consuming around, you know, 8 billion cubic feet of natural gas per day. And with, you know, new power plants and maquiladoras and all types of things coming online, that demand is only going to continue to grow. So so to fill that supply gap, there's a number of, you know, cross-border natural gas pipelines, uh, mostly here in Texas, and um, every month, to to be honest about about these statistics, every month a new record is broken. So uh, the the EIA released these figures, you know, just uh, a week ago, and and it said that that Mexico in August, that Mexico in August, these these statistics are always a little bit delayed. Um, so in August, Mexico was importing six, or near Mexico was importing nearly six billion cubic feet of natural gas per day. Um, in August. And that's, that, that beats a record set in July, which beat one set in June, <laughs> you know? And I think that, you know, with winter in the winter months, I think you can expect that to even climb even higher over the next few months. Um, you know, and I'll give you the breakdown on that. Um, out of that 6 billion cubic feet of natural gas to, per day, 5.1 billion was delivered via pipeline. And the rest was, uh, through LNG, yeah, LNG import terminals. Sergio, with with the new president uh, Lopez Obrador coming in, do you do you see um, him um, making any statements or giving any, any indication that his policies uh, he has specific policies in mind that might help Pemex become more efficient at developing Mexico's own natural gas resources? Yes, no, definitely. Um, there's definitely uh, political rhetoric in that area to do just that for Mexico to be able to 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 produce and meet all its natural gas demands. Um, the trick is though, is it that he can say that, but to make it a reality is, is it a, is a totally different thing. And it, it takes time yeah. to develop these, these, these resources and to, and to, to make up for a 6 billion cubic feet per day, you know, deficit, it, it might, it might take longer than his term in office. Um, <laughs> You know, especially if they're trying to do, uh, he only gets six years, you know, in Mexico, you get, you get elected president, you serve a single term for six years and, uh, they call it a sexenio. And, um, and, and, uh, and in that time, I don't know, I mean, to, to do the scale of, you know, hydraulic fracturing for the Burgos Basin and, you know, they might have better luck doing shallow water or deep water projects, which, which are still take, take time to develop. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know that that's what he wants and it's, it's a, and it, you know, a lot of, a lot of people in Mexico think it's a great idea. And 
support it, but just the reality, it, it, it may, it just may not be, it might not happen on a, on a timescale um, that they're doing. And there's another thing too. I mean, even if they do natural gas production in Mexico, like the economics, you know, it's just so abundant and cheaply produced here in the United States. You know, Mexico can't necessarily compete with, you know, producers in the, in neighboring Texas or elsewhere. Um, that's just another option thing to consider too. I mean, would they be producing, you know, at a loss when they could right. be buying cheaper natural gas from the United States, you know, it's an interesting situation, and, and you know, I'm definitely following it to see how it plays out. Okay, now let's turn now to another piece you got out here. We'll kind of dovetail these two together. We have one about LNG tanker arrives at Chenier Energy Corpus Christi plant, and also we have a piece that's talking about the new rules of the Panama Canal that should help U.S. companies. Um, you know, let's kind of separate them and then bring them together, Sergio. Right, and, you know, so Mexico is not the only customer for um, – you know, uh, natural gas from here in Texas. And, and, um, I'll tell you what, um, oh, they've had the Chenier energy, the new, uh, Corpus Christi LNG export terminal they're building. Um, they, they started production, you know, in, around in mid November for train one, the first production unit over there. And, uh, since then they've had at least two tankers, you know, dock at, at the at the facility. The first one there was just for the grand opening with Governor Abbott, and it was more of a photo op type of opportunity and testing, you know, hoses and things like that. And and now what everybody's watching is the second LNG tanker named the Maria Express, which just arrived on, on December 1st. And everyone wants to know, are they going to fill it up with LNG and are they going to send it, you know, overseas to a customer um you know that facility has a whole bunch of long-term contracts but but they need to do these type of um you know um tests and things before they can get going to meet those contracts and you know if 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 it does leave um with a with a with a load of lng it'll be the first lng shipment from texas so it'll be a big historic moment here and something that that a lot of people in the industry uh, have been waiting for and watching closely. Well, and that's then, a phenomenal, um, phenomenal development that they got that thing, that facility. You know, they've actually built that facility in a pretty short order. Uh, and I guess maybe part of that has to do with being in Texas. It's easier to get things permitted here than some other states. And uh, and with, with all the good uh, infrastructure we have here, probably speeds up the process of building these things but uh it sure is great news for the oil and gas industry here in texas to have another facility getting ready to open oh definitely and they they tapped a general contractor named bechtel and bechtel's done i think like something like on the order of 14 lng facilities across the globe six of them i think were at least six trains for chenier so uh, <laughs> that that relationship's working out well <laughs> Okay, well, Sergio, again, congratulations. Um, I know you've got a new piece out. You were at a dinner last night spending big money because that's the kind of money you got now at the Chronicle, going out to hear Rex Tillerson speak. Um, <laughs> uh, you got a piece on Houston Chronicle about that. Um, anything else you want to plug, promote, where can people find you until we get you back on here, which will be next year. So uh, have a happy Christmas until then. But anything that you want to uh, plug one more time before we let you out of here? Oh, yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, guys. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, just follow the fun. Um, 
covering oil and gas from the energy capital of the world um, here in Houston. And that would be on Twitter at Sergio Chapa. That's all one word. And then if you want to see uh, uh, photos, travel photos and everything, uh, photos from these facilities, uh, that would be Instagram. That's at Sergio.Chapa. So somebody else had grabbed the, had grabbed the one I wanted, the real username I wanted. That's okay. <laughs> Okay, well, Sergio, thank you again for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you next year, bud. All right. Happy New Year, Ryan. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Sergio for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed him. And thank you, David. Last minute stepped up for Josh, and so uh, really appreciate that. Um, couple quick... Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it's always good. We won't have you on again until next year, so look forward to getting you back on. A couple quick notes here. Don't forget a rating review. And, David, I didn't mention this earlier, but we're working out a deal, working out a deal with potentially having an offshore um, fishing charter service sponsor the show for next year. So we might have some news about that. You get to go down there and go fishing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's it's, it, it, someone's got to do it, right, David? Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, what do you want people to look up, or find you, anything you want to leave them with before we let you off here for the last time this year? Shellmag.com, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com, and dbdailyupdate.com. That's where you can find me. Okay, and until next time, keep climbing. Keep climbing.